Let us turn for our scripture reading this evening. We turn first of all to the book of the Revelation, the book of Revelation chapter 11, and we read verses 11 to the verse 19. Revelation chapter 11, verse 11 to the verse 19. This is God's word. Let us hear together. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast, and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power, and hast reigned, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings, voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. We turn now to Epistle 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, reading verses 13 to the verse 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to the verse 18. Again, this is God's holy word. Let us hear. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so... Shall we ever be with the Lord? Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. This is God's word. May the Lord bless the public reading of his precious, inerrant, infallible, sacred word. Let us come to the Lord in prayer, bringing our many petitions before him, especially the great need of his Spirit's help and enlightenment here tonight. Let us Come, let us pray together. Well, dear congregation, I ask you to please turn your prayerful attention to the words that I read to you earlier in your hearing, the book of Revelation, the 11th chapter. We arrive this evening in our consecutive week-by-week ministry through this last book of the Bible, and we come this evening to the verse 11, verse 11 of chapter 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, that they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. Well, we considered really this verse last time, but it's this last section that we consider this evening with the Lord's help, the verses 11 to the verse 19. Do you remember at the outset of chapter 11, we saw the witness of the true church, those in the inner court pictured in the Old Testament 
tabernacle. But of course we know it has already been destroyed at 70 AD. 25 years at least have passed. But it is a picture. Those in that inner court, not the court of the Gentiles, but that inner court where only the Jew could enter. And here now we're thinking, aren't we, spiritually. Paul tells us in Romans 2 that he is a Jew who is one inwardly and that circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. It's always been the way. Father Abraham was first of all circumcised, wasn't he, in the heart? Before, Paul tells us, he had the circumcision of the flesh. Romans chapter 4, you can read it all for yourself. Abraham was one who received that blessedness of God before he was called even out of Haran. He was a believer, and by faith he obeyed. Faith was there because he had a circumcised heart. It's the circumcision of the heart which the Apostle Paul speaks of in Colossians chapter 2. That circumcision of Christ, the circumcision that is without hands, says the Apostle Paul. Persecution comes to those who are in that inner court. Chapter 11, verse 1. John was told, remember after he had received the little book, which is the word of God, and especially the gospel, and it is also described as the mystery. After he received the little book, he also received a reed. It was like unto a measuring rod, and he was to measure the church. Of course, God knows the dimensions of the true church. He knows the number. He's already told us in Revelation chapter 7, hasn't he? He heard a number from heaven, and it was what? 144,000. It was a thousand from each tribe, representing every true spiritual Israelite, which is who? The elect. All of the elect are numbered. And we are told in Revelation 11 that that inner court, and of course this is all symbolism, isn't it? That inner court will be the true persecuted in this world. For how long will they be persecuted? Well, we're told there in three different ways. The days of their persecution. It's the gospel age. It's three and a half years. It's also 42 months and 1260 days. Three different ways of saying the same thing. And we saw it, didn't we, in the next chapter. Chapter 12. The woman, the church, after she gave birth to the man-child, remember they crucified him. Who was he? the Lord of glory. And then we're told in chapter 12 that he is taken up to his throne in heaven and she was persecuted how long? Well, for those three and a half years, for the 1260 days, for the 42 months. We saw it at the end even of that self-same chapter. Verse 15, sorry, verse 5 of chapter 12 and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. That's Christ. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God. that They should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Twelve hundred and sixty days. And uh, we know... Come down to verse 14 of chapter 12. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. We said time is one and times two. That's three. And then half a time, which is the three and a half years altogether. It's the same way of saying the same thing, isn't it? You don't have to be a mathematician. You don't have to be very good at maths to work these things out. But it's all there. The symbolism is all there. And we find that same symbolism in that three and a half years also in the book of Daniel and the chapter 9, which we'll look at later on this evening with the Lord's help. Well, we arrive in verses 11 to the verse 19, and we see here particularly now the seventh trumpet. And remember, 
as we've been studying through the book of the Revelation, I trust that you've come to see we're seeing it in the right and proper way. How we're to study the book of the Revelation, well, it's very clear, it should be clear to us now that the book of the Revelation is a structured book in terms of we see sequences, sequences happening the same time. There are cycles or sequences, and these things are what we call synchronous. They run in parallel one with another. There are seven cycles in the book of the Revelation. And the first cycle we saw was seen from the vantage point of the church. Church are those seven candlesticks. Seven, of course, representative of all or complete complete church. A church will always be throughout the gospel age, throughout this time that the man-child was taken up into glory until his second coming. Seven cycles. Each cycle showing in, as we said, symbolic language, different events that take place in this world. Things seen from different vantage points. Different angles. We saw, as we said in the first cycle, things seen from the vantage point of the church. And Christ walks amidst the lampstands. Each church. And he knows every single individual. He knows every minister of every church. He knows every individual. And uh, he cares for the church. And he points out things that need to be addressed. And he says, well, he that overcomes shall inherit. Of course, all Christians are overcomers. They overcome their sin. They overcome the world, the flesh, and Satan. Well, so we saw, first of all, things happening from the perspective of the church. The church will be persecuted. And then we saw, didn't we, the seven seals. Those are the things that God has decreed, whatever will happen, and we saw things like earthquakes, famines, these are all decreed by God, but we also see them as trumpets. We're now in the midst of the seven trumpets, and the, the things that happen in the world are warnings, aren't they? And we learnt in uh, chapter 11, as chapter 11 began, as the church begins to pray, those judgments come. And we thought, didn't we, in uh, chapter 11, of how the church will maintain its witness. Do you remember the language we considered in chapter 11 last week uh, about the church? It, the church is who? The inner court, verse 2. These who are sanctified and holy to the people, to God. They are also called the holy city. And he says, I will give power to my two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? Well, first of all, we thought, didn't we, from the language of Zechariah chapter 4, how the olive tree provided oil for the lanterns. Remember how the Lord said to Zerubbabel and uh, to Joshua the high priest and to Zechariah that while things were rather depressing and down in those days, the temple lay in ruins. In Zechariah's day, the Lord said, it will, the work will continue. I will build my church. And you see, while we may not see it now, while the church might look rather pathetic even this evening, one day the world will see the church. Everyone that dies in the Lord, their spirit goes to be with God. There are people dying tonight. And they're entering heaven and the glory of heaven. And one day when Christ comes, he will resurrect their bodies, as we will see tonight. The world will be shocked when they see that number, which no man can number. John heard a number, 144,000, but when he saw the number, it was a number that no man could number. Out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, from all corners of this world, but the church, as we thought last week in chapter 11, will be persecuted. And the, the witness of the church will continue. What is the witness? Well, we're told two olive trees 
and two lampstands. Not just two olive trees. Many people look at that and say, well, they're just two olive trees. But the two lampstands. We know, we read already, didn't we, from the opening of the book of the Revelation, what is the lampstand? It's the church. But what are the olive trees? It's where the Spirit of God anoints the church, gives oil to the lamp. God is saying effectively, I will be with my church. I will give my Spirit to my people, so that they will witness, so that the lampstands will burn bright in this dark world. This is what God is saying. Who are the two witnesses? We could say the church and God's Spirit with the church. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said? Lo, I will send another helper, another comforter. Lo, I am with you. He said, even to the end of the age, Christ will be with us. It's amazing, isn't it? The Lord is with us. He is building his church. Well, there is the lampstand, but never forget, there is the Lord providing his spirit, providing, just as we saw there in Zechariah, how the olive trees right next to the lampstands, there is a basin. And the oil is tapped in, as it was in the Old Testament, into the lampstand. In the Old Testament, the lampstand, there were seven candlesticks, but they were on one stand. It's a picture, isn't it? God has his complete church, always, and none shall be lost. And they were persecuted, we read, didn't we? But, remember as we thought last week, I'm just reviewing a little bit before we come to these verses now, how these witnesses are given power if any man hurt them. We're told there will come harm to the enemies of the church. When the church prays, verse 6, these, that's the witnesses, have power to shut heaven. We thought for, didn't we, last week, God will be just like as in the days of Elijah. Remember how long he prayed? Remember he prayed and the Lord shut the heavens for how long? We're told three and a half years. And then he prayed again. And then there was rain. So the Lord hears the prayers, you see, of the church. And then also, the church has power over the waters to turn them to blood. Just as in the days of Moses and the people as they came out of Egypt. Remember how God delivered them out? They had power because God gave the power. God is a prayer-answering God. He will answer the prayers of his people. What a comfort. But what happens? Well, they're hated by the world. They're not just witnesses in terms of preaching God's word, but they witness with their lives. They live godly. And, uh, well, when they finish their testimony, what happens? It seems, verse 7, that things get terrible. It's true, when one's witness is finished, our life might even be taken away. This happened to all the apostles. When their time of witnessing was up, all of them, bar John, were martyred. It's true for many, and the world will hate us. We're also told that they were slain, and how the people of the earth rejoiced over the death of God's children. God's true children in spirit. Well, they didn't even suffer their dead bodies to be put to graves. We thought, Mr. Wycliffe, last week, didn't we, how they even exhumed his body after so many years and burnt his ashes, burnt his body and put the ashes in the river swift where they want God's people to die. Of course, the memory... The conscience is troubled. Because why? People have the law of God written upon their hearts. And their consciences always accuse them. Verse 10. They make merry. It's the people of the earth. And they send gifts one to another. Because these two prophets or preachers, the witnesses, that's the lampstand and God's spirit, 
tormented them. Tormented. The people of this world, they were tormented. The unbeliever is tormented. Why? Because they know the truth. You only have to just live godly before people. You only have to just not swear in the office and uh, not laugh at the rude and the crude jokes. The world hates you. Tormented. People want to live their way, you see. And deep in the conscience they know there is a creator. There is a God that they are accountable to. So you see, it's seen from the vantage point here of the church. And uh, this is what we are to be encouraged by. And what we'll see tonight as we come to the verses 11 to the verse 19, what do we have here? We are now, I must remind you, in this third cycle coming to the end of this cycle, coming to the seventh trumpet which will sound in the verses that we read here tonight. This is the final judgment. This is the interesting thing. This is why those who hold to a premillennial view or even a post-millennial view are in great confusion when they come to the book of the Revelation. Because it can only be understood in terms of cycles. You would have seven judgment days. Here we see the saints taken up into heaven. We see sinners tremble before a holy God of wrath. Well, here in these verses we have the general resurrection and things happening at that time. And what we'll see, there are some woes here pronounced. Two woes at least. We've seen already the first woe. And uh, Christ is going to come. Uh, later on in the book of the Revelation, Revelation 22, 9, we see, Then he said unto me, See that thou do it, for I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren the prophets. And then we read in verse 11 of Revelation 22, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly or suddenly. See, the coming hasn't even come yet when you get to the book of the Revelation. Why? Because we're going through cycles. We're seeing these scenes happen again and again. And we're reminded Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And he says there, Behold, I come quickly, verse 12, and my reward is with me. Well, Christ has done a work in his people. And that, in a sense, is going to be a reward to him. It's his work in us. He'll get the glory when he comes, won't he? He died for his people, and he lived in them. And he sanctified them by his word. And then, ultimately, the greatest is, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. These are wonderful things to consider. So this evening, there are two more woes as we come to the seventh trumpet. Remember the first woe was in chapter 9. Have a look there in the verse 12. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. This is in the third cycle of the trumpets. And then you notice the six angels sounded, sounded the trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And you see the, the saints begin to pray. And then tribulation comes upon this world. And great calamities. Why? Because prayer is being answered. Now we come here to verse 11 and 12. And this follows immediately as you notice verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11, and after three days and a half, and what's that? Well, we know what it is. It's the 1260 days. It's the three and a half years, isn't it? It's the gospel age. At the end of the gospel age, what happens? The spirit of life from God entered into them. This is amazing. This is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. But he is speaking, first of all, specifically about the just first of all. And uh, we want to think here upon this resurrection this evening. What is this resurrection? Well, it's very important 
And this fits exactly, let me say, when Christ comes, every eye will see him. We notice here, after the three days and a half, that is after they preached and they witnessed, as we read earlier, for that three and a half days or 1260 days or 42 months. Same thing again. What happens? The Lord comes. Well, it fits in, doesn't it, with Matthew 24 and the verse 14. It says there, the Lord Jesus said exactly that. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Suddenly, as soon as the last sermon is to be preached, there's no delay. Once the last saint is saved and brought to faith in Christ, God will come. No point in waiting any longer. The world only exists for the sake of that very last saint to be called and everyone that is being called right now by God's grace. Now what we have here in verse 12 is the general resurrection. And uh, you notice as we read in the verse 11, and after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet Now notice this, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. So that tells you this, there's a general resurrection. Those that are alive and living will see them. And all the kindreds and tribes of the earth shall mourn, we're told right at the beginning of the book of the Revelation. When he comes upon the clouds of heaven. Do you remember what our Lord Jesus said? If you just turn to Matthew, sorry, John chapter 5. This is a general resurrection, and we'll see it in the verses that will follow, especially verse 12. It says there, and their enemies beheld them, verse 12. Notice that's very very important to see, end of verse 12. But turn with me to John 5 now, verse 26. The Lord Jesus addressing the Jews... He's just healed a man at the pool there and uh, many of of them accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. Uh, Then he goes on to speak about the authority which he has. For as the Father, verse 26 of John 5, hath life in himself, so is he given to the Son to have life in himself and hath given him the authority, authority to execute judgment also. That's judgment day. Because he is the son of man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Now notice the two different kinds of people. And they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So as soon as he comes, everyone is going to come from the graves. Everyone that has been dead, when Christ comes forth, friends, every eye will see him, including the very high priest that Christ stood before. Remember the words he gave to him. They're in Mark chapter 14. They're quite striking. It says there in Mark 14, verse 16, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses say against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now notice, and Jesus said, I am. I am. And notice what else he said. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Mark 14, verse 60 to verse 62. He said to the high priest, you're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven. You'll see me at my Father's right hand. Now we read earlier, didn't we, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the reason we did that is during Paul's day, there were those at Thessalonica 
who thought that those who were dead already had missed out on the resurrection. That there's no hope for them when Christ comes. What's going to happen? Those who were already dead, they were thinking, have missed out. But Paul says, no. Let me just quote you those verses. Verse 16, you don't have to turn there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. The shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. That's the last trumpet we've just read. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. So think of it. He says, those who are asleep, their bodies are in the grave. They shall arise first. Now notice, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. He says, we're going to be taken up with them. Don't think that they're going to be behind. They're going to rise. If you're still alive, they were worried. What about if Christ comes tomorrow? He says, at the twinkling of an eye. Elsewhere. The dead in Christ will arise. Don't you worry about that? And he says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And by the way, you notice there, when he comes, it's not a thousand year reign on the earth. Do you notice this? It's right here even in this chapter. He he says, as soon as Christ comes, you're going to be taken up. Be weird. Living with a glorified Christ. And men with their nuclear weapons and so on, trying to fight a glorious Lord. Ridiculous. No, when he comes, every eye will see him. And uh, it'll be too late. Sinners will be cast into a lost eternity. And he says here, you'll meet the Lord in the air. And uh, there are some things I want us to glean here, because it answers maybe some questions we have. Will there be memory? Well, we're told here that the wicked actually see into heaven and they see God's people praising God. Startling. Notice, end of the verse 12. Let me read verse 12. And they, that is God's people, heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. Notice, and their enemies beheld them. They saw them. So there's a general resurrection. You see it? It's not as if it's... uh, I think there was a film that came out. I don't watch films, but The Body Snatchers or something like that. Nonsense. This is a general resurrection. And uh, every eye will see, and their enemies beheld them. They see them from afar off. This reminds us, doesn't it, of Luke 16. Actually, if you you study Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man is actually in the lake of fire. He's in flames of fire. And uh, when we die now, if, if an unbeliever dies, the Scriptures say a man goes to be reserved in a place of judgment. But there in Luke 16 we read, And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. And we're told that he seeth Abraham afar off. The rich man could see Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So he's beholding. It'll come a day, friends, when these things will take place. 2 Peter 3, 7 says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment. We will see later on in the book of the Revelation that after the judgment, men are cast into the lake of fire. Not now, but they will be cast into the lake of fire after they are judged. But now, Peter tells us, and Paul and several other passages say that they're reserved in outer darkness. And that surely itself must be abject misery. Now there is memory. Because they behold these. And they're angry, we're told here, in this chapter. They're angry with the righteous, who they tormented. 
die by their witness. But there's a rejoicing of the saved as they are taken up in the clouds of heaven. Verse 12, And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up, these are them who are arising hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. That's what Paul says, doesn't he, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, I want you to notice several things as we come to this. Now, the first thing I want to say is there's a rejoicing in those that are saved. And, and we see them praising God, verse 16. They praise God. They sit before God and they worship God. Now, there will be a rejoicing of those who are saved as they meet the Lord. And we've got to remember this. We won't have, at that point, uh, the kind of thinking that we sometimes are taken up with, this sort of soppy, sentimental view of God's wrath and judgment against men. But rather, we will think as God thinks in that day. We will see as God thinks. We will be perfect. Maybe we find that hard to imagine as even our loved ones are cast, and I know this is very difficult, into the flames of fire. And, the, well, if only there were literal fire, if only it was annihilation. It, they symbols, and it speaks of unspeakable pain, whatever the lake of fire is, unspeakable pain. The symbols are always less than the reality. But we will not have this sort of sentimental, soppy, view of God's judgment, even as he is judging our offspring. Now, I know that seems very hard to say, but it's true. We have to believe that. We have to believe that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes because we will see righteousness for righteousness. We'll see sin for what it really is. And we'll see God's holiness. And nothing will perturb us. Nothing will disturb us. We will be sinless. John says we shall be like him, for we shall be as he is. We'll think aright like God. Now, I want you to notice there are woes. It says there in verse 14, the second woe is past. And behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now, there was an earlier woe in chapter 9. And... Uh, I think we quoted that earlier. But here are the woes. The second woe, verse 14. But let's read verse 13 first and come to verse 13. In the same hour there was a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell. Now what does that mean? Now remember we're dealing in symbolism. And the book of the Revelation, let me say at this point again, it's not something you can just pick up now and then. When we study the book of the Revelation, it's something we've got to be very studious in. We've got to get the symbolism right. It's all here for us. The interpretations are found not only in the book of the Revelation, but as we saw last week in Ezekiel, Zechariah, Old Testament Scripture. It's rooted in the Bible. And we've got to understand, what do these things mean? Why the tenth part? And what is the city? Well, remember earlier that uh, those in the city described as Sodom and Egypt, where he says the Lord was crucified. Who was that? The Lord of glory, where he was crucified. Those who hate him and hated him, verse 8, they're Dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Now think of it. This is certainly Jerusalem, but also Jerusalem was no better than the world. There are also Gentiles in the world. And uh, by the way, in the book of the Revelation, God's people, you get to the end of the book of the Revelation, God's people are pictured as a city. You get to Revelation 22, John says, I saw the holy city of God coming down from heaven. But the world is pictured here in terms of this imagery as Sodom and Egypt. Think of it. Sodom. 
The world, is, is it not like Sodom? It's lewd. It's full of debauchery, filthiness, immorality. But why Egypt? Persecution. What did the Egyptians do to the Jews? They persecuted them. They hounded them, Pharaoh and his army, right to the Red Sea until God destroyed them. That's why you have these two images here portraying the world. And we're told the same hour there was a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell. Now why ten? Let me submit to you, and it's very difficult. You get to some commentators, they say all sorts of things and then they start to use words like, well, it could mean this or could mean that, and that's not very helpful, is it? You start to say things like that. So let, let me put it to you, the most simple form here that we can understand this. Ten is very symbolic in the Scriptures. Think of it. What do we have when it comes to ten? And I'm going to show you from the book of the Revelation. Number ten in the Bible, and ten particularly in prophecy, and in the teaching of God's Word, usually relate to something given by God. And here, I will show you that it it has to do with power. Ten has to do with power and responsibility. First of all, think of it, something given by God. We have, what, ten commandments. How many commandments are there? Ten. And uh, we we know from Romans 2, 14 and 15, that the law of God is written upon everybody's soul, even the Gentiles. Or says their conscience accusing them or else excusing them when they do the things of the law. Now, what does God require? I said responsibility. He requires obedience, doesn't he? To his law. There were ten plagues, weren't there? Ten. Indicating what responsibility? Pharaoh was responsible. The people were responsible. Plagues were given to warn. We have ten fingers, ten toes, every one of us. What do you do with your fingers? You work. What do you do with your toes? You walk on your feet, don't you? These things are given by God. This was what we're saying. There were ten lepers that were healed, remember. But only one turned around and gave glory to God. Ten is very significant. We're reminded. Think of it. Job had ten children. But what did the Lord do? The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. Ten indicates something given by God. Something else. What about tithes? Scriptures tell us to give our tithes. It's 10%. Why not 10.5? Why not 11? Why not 9.5? Why not 20%? Because 10 indicates God has given whatever you have your health, your strength, to go and earn that money. And ultimately, everything belongs to him. Even the cattle on a thousand hills, everything is given by God. So 10, and I'm going to show you now from the book of the Revelation, it indicates power given. And it's taken away. A tenth part of the city has to do with power. Think of it. As people are resurrected, Those kings of the earth, men and women who even cremated their bodies and said, when you light me up in the crematorium, God's not going to have the last word over this body. Guess what? God does have the last word, doesn't he? Those same bodies will come out of the grave that have been burnt. And those that have been been given power and responsibility will see that these people, even the power and the responsibility that they had, that they were not self-made people. That they were first of all made in the image of God and the responsibility that God gave them, they abused it. And all the light that God gave through nature and everything, God gave it to them. But now they have no power. Now they're helpless before his almighty throne. If you turn to, uh, you you know from uh, Romans chapter 13, sorry, verse 1, Paul says, even the powers that be 
are what? They're ordained of God. Do you remember as Pilate stood before our Lord Jesus? And uh, he thought he was mighty powerful, wasn't he? That's what he thought. But what did the Lord Jesus say to him? In John 19, Then Pilate saith unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Hear what he's saying. Pilate, you wouldn't even be in this position unless it was appointed by my father. Same with Pharaoh. Same with everybody that has ever lived. They will have what they thought. They were their own little autonomous creatures, their own sort of self-made men, will suddenly, the whole city, the tenth part, the power, will be taken from them. They will realize that they are nothings before Almighty God. I believe that this is what the symbolic language is teaching us here. The tenth part, the power, responsibility. Notice, if you turn with me to Revelation um, chapter 17, you notice how there are ten kings. Now, we mustn't believe that there are literally ten kings, it says, as we'll see this later on. And the ten horns, and by the way, horns, you've heard me say this time and time again, even in the Old Testament, horns represent power. And the ten horns which thou sawest are the ten kings, which have, notice, received no kingdom as yet. Not yet. Not until God's time. But received power as things one hour with a beast. You see? So long as God determines it, they receive power. And then later we read, and they are of one mind. Well, what does that mean? It's to do God's will. They think they're resisting God, but they're actually just performing God's decree. Quite something, isn't it? They have power. I'll give you another verse. In uh, Revelation 13, verse 1, we mustn't think that Satan, the beast that rises up out of the sea, actually has ten horns. But it, it, it represents power. Revelation 13, 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. He has been given power. Ten always represents given. As I said, it, it, the, the same image is found in Daniel 7. I said earlier we'd look at Daniel 7. Daniel seven twenty four. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And think to change times and laws. And notice something quite striking, and they shall be given unto his hand. No, notice, a time, and times, and the dividing of time. There again, you've got the three and a half years. A time, times, it's two, and then what? The dividing of time, the half, the six months. See what I'm saying? The symbolism is absolutely consistent. Satan has power, but he's like a dog on a chain. I know it's a crass analogy. But you know, the Lord will only allow him to get so far. John Bunyan saw this in Pilgrim's Progress, put it in terms of a lion. How Satan walketh around as a roar. He can only go so far. He can only do so much. Just as the Lord Jesus said to Pilate, thou wouldst have no power except it be given thee. And that's how we need to see this. They will see that they have no power. Satan also has been given power, as we said, Revelation 13, 1. 
he that riseth out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. That's even the power that he has, friends. Remember that. It's been given of God. (laughs) Do you remember what he said to Satan when he saw Job? The Lord only permitted him so far, didn't he? Couldn't touch his health. Couldn't take his life. Limited. God is over all. Well, they will see. They thought they had wisdom. They thought they had power. But even men like David Attenborough, Mr. Dawkins, they are utter fools in that day. They have no power over their life. All the celebrities, all the ungodly, all the unsaved, they will see that they have no power and dominion. They thought they had power, but they will soon rise to see that they have no power, they have no wisdom. Yes, they were given responsibility, but what an abuse they made of their lives and of others. And how they even, as we will read later, how they even destroyed the earth. Why is destruction coming upon this earth? Well, we're told by Paul that God has subjected the whole of creation in futility because of sin. That's why God's wrath is coming. And even the plagues that come are coming because of their sin. And one day, whether it's the atheist, Mr. Dawkins, Mr. Attenborough, whether it's the rank atheist, whether it's a king, or whether it's the street sweeper, they're all going to meet God and see that they are utterly powerless before him. And that they were responsible. The tenth part will be taken away and they will have no power over the grave. They will realize again they never had power over their dead bodies when they thought cremation will never will have the last word. God says, they shall rise out of the dust. Well, the third woe, verse 15 to 19, and we see Christ's reward and Christ's wrath. There are two things here. Christ's reward and Christ's wrath. Verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Again, it's not a millennial reign, it's forever and ever. Now some people say, well, I thought Christ was reigning. Yes, he is, but he will have out of this world every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and nation from all parts of this world. There will be a vast plethora of people that have been taken up yonder. And we're told here that saints and angels rejoice Now, over God's victory and Christ's vindication over the wicked, the kingdoms of this world, it says, are become the kingdoms of our Lord. Yes, well, what is happening here? This is not the millennial reign. It's not as if Christ, he reigns now. Remember Psalm 110 The Father said to the Son, sit down at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's now reigning, and he's now dashing the nations as with a rod of iron. But now he's going to make his enemies his footstool after he judges them. That's what it means. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, we read, These are very important words. Then cometh the end. Notice the words carefully. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. Now notice, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. You hear it? Listen to that carefully. He must reign. He's reigning now. Till when? Till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The final defeat 
will be judgment. When he raises those bodies from the grave and he judges his enemies and he puts them under his feet. Notice the reward of God's people, verse 16. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God. What a picture. Fell on their faces. I don't know if you've ever fell on your face. Prayer, thanksgiving, just overwhelmed. The enemies are now being dealt with. God's people are so thankful. The four and twenty elders here we've seen at least three times in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. The four and twenty elders represent all saints, both Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. Not a special elect amongst the elect, but they represent all of God's people both Old Testament, the prophets, and the apostles who represented God's people. The saints, as we will see. These saints in verse 18 are mentioned. The prophets, notice there, the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great. Every one of them. These are them. Now, we can be no doubt that these are all the saints. Because notice, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. They know it, and they praise him, and the wicked see them from afar. Notice verse 18, And the nations were angry. And thy wrath is come. Why were they angry? Well, because, no doubt, there was a true witness. Wasn't there? But there was no repentance. It's interesting. They're angry. They're angry at themselves. They're angry at God. But there's no repentance. None at all. And thy wrath is come. Verse 18, B. And the time of thy dead, that they should be judged. And thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great. Think of it. From the very least saint, God will rule. The one who felt himself to be such a disheveled Christian, often wondered about his or her salvation. God will reward them. From the greatest prophet to the least of the saints. Small, it says here, and great. Not one of them is forgotten by God. It's a work he did in them. And it's a life they live for him. So they hear and they, the wicked even see and they hear God will reward all these people. This is why they are angry. That's what it says, and the nations were angry. Not just the city, it's a whole nation of the world, isn't it? Angry. So here we have the prophets that were slain, all the saints, throughout all the ages. And it says, and them that fear thy name, small and great. This is another way of saying this is all of God's people. Raised up in heaven. You see, they're all before the throne. This is why you can't take it that four and twenty elders are some sort of elect group of the elect. But it's all. And the wicked will see this from afar. They're angry because the Lord rewards them. And we have these words and should destroy them which destroy the earth. Well, that's the ungodly. Now, suppose they, they realize, you know, these world climate change people. You know why judgment is coming? You know why there is trouble? 
It's because of sin. That's the reason. It's not pollutants. It's God's angry with sinners every day. It's sin that brings the judgments even down now. Now what happens next? Verse 19, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Think of it. For the first time, the ark is seen. You couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, but now it is seen. And when it is seen, what is there? There is lightnings, and it says voices and thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. It's a picture of Mount Sinai, friends. It's a picture of judgment. It's a picture of woe. Woe. But for God's people, it's paradise. Because in God's temple, God will tabernacle with his people forever and ever. But here's the last judgment, you see. As the wicked look, they see the ark. What's in the ark? The law. The Ten Commandments that they have broken. Those laws that are written and impregnated upon their souls. What else is there? There's the Lamb. There's the budding rod which pictures Christ always bearing fruit. The manna which came down from heaven who's Christ in that golden censer. They see the ark. They see the lightnings. Do you remember there in Exodus 19, we are told that it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that the people was in the camp trembled. And we read as God gave the law in Exodus 20, it says, and all the people saw the thunderings in verse 18 there and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. My friends, it's going to be a far more fearful scene than that. On that great day, when heaven is open, and they see God's holiness. That's really what the ark pictures, doesn't it? the holiness and the majesty and the glory of God. But it's heaven for God's people. Because Christ is on the throne for them, who bled for them. The open door is an open heaven for them, where they worship God forever and ever. Friends, I must say it is only grace that ever opened our eyes to see the Lord. We take no boast here tonight. There was a time where we, like Paul, maybe we, we heard the law, but when it truly came, Paul said, I died. He said, I saw I was a covetous man. He saw he was a blasphemer. He saw he was not a keeper of the law. But then Christ struck him down, didn't he? On that road to Damascus. And God made him a vessel of mercy. Trophy of his grace. Showed him the Lord Jesus. Showed him his sin. Brought him to that place of repentance toward God. And faith in our Lord Jesus. Same with John. Same with all of the apostles. Peter, I chose you. You didn't choose me. They're God's people. Chosen before the world began. And he brings us to see that he is holy now. But he brings us to see the Christ that loved us. And gave himself for us. So that when we see him. We'll not shrink back. But we will fall on our faces. 
as these brethren do here, both small and great. And I want to encourage you tonight. Maybe you feel you're a very feeble Christian. My friend, if God has begun a good work in you, he will see it to completion. He said, even a glass of cold water given to one of God's people, he will reward. There's a great dividing, isn't there? Sheep and the goats. Here's the question now. Do you love God? You love him if you love his son. And you love his spirit if he has begun a work in you and brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.